0: Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings. In today's episode, a conversation with David McAllister, author of Ballet Confidential. McAllister is the former artistic director and a principal dancer with the Australian Ballet, which he joined in 1983. Among many major works, he performed principal roles with the company in The Sleeping Beauty, Romeo and Juliet, Don Quixote, Coppelia. Onegin, and Manon. McAllister is an awardee of a centenary medal, a member and companion of the Order of Australia, and has been awarded by the Royal Academy of Dance. This book, Ballet Confidential, takes us backstage, in a manner of speaking, and serves as a wonderfully elucidatory introduction to the world of ballet. McAllister's enthusiasm, paired with experience, mastery even, means that Ballet Confidential has something for everyone, from longtime fans of ballet to those who it might never have occurred to step a foot inside the theatre. I began our conversation by asking David where, following his memoir Saw from 2020, the spark for this book came from.
1: It really came from Thames and Hudson. I thought when we did Saw, that was sort of it. That was my one book. Mm.
0: <laughs> and um,
1: I was in Finland and I was actually caught out of Australia because of COVID in 2021. And I got an email from Sally Heath saying, we were wondering if you'd be interested in writing another book. And I just sort of went, oh what about <laughs> and she said you know it would be great to do a book about ballet and my initial reaction was like there's so many great academic books about ballet and you know the technique of ballet the history of ballet i just didn't feel like that i had anything more to say about it but you know once you have those moments where someone plants a seed you know the next couple of days it was sort of in my head and then I sort of came up with this idea of what about that book about ballet that people don't know about? Like after performances and in events that you go to as a dancer and an artistic director, people often ask questions about things about the ballet that they may have thought or didn't know. And I thought, there's a whole wealth of questions that I've answered individually that could make for an interesting sort of behind-the-scenes book. So I pitched the idea, and my pitch to the Thames and Hudson people was, this is the book that people who love ballet buy for their friends who don't get ballet. (laughs) So, And they seemed to like the idea, and off we went.
0: I think it's a welcome and valuable contribution to their catalogue, so I'm glad it happened. To fill in our listeners... Could you tell me a little bit about what an artistic director does within a ballet company?
1: Well, it's a very good question. And it's one of those questions that people often ask because, you know, creative director, I guess, is, is, you know, more the general parlance. But as an artistic director in a ballet company, you're pretty much responsible for everything that goes on stage. So the dancers and their welfare, the repertoire that the company stages, the way the company looks, and you set the artistic vision for the organisation. So when you're appointed to these roles, they usually want you to say, "Okay, where are we going to be in five to ten years' time? So it is about the day-to-day running of the company, but it's also about that broad, strategic, what do we want to achieve? But, you know, it can be anything from... Being in photo shoots, working with the marketing team, even though they're not under your direct responsibility, having performance reviews with all the dancers and the artistic staff, working and commissioning choreographers, designers, musicians, working alongside the music director in relation to all things musical of course the other side is that sort of engagement side so you know exciting patrons to give us money talking to the government sponsors donors about the resources for the company and you know being an advocate I guess in the general public for the art form and and you know the company that you're involved in so it's a big brief
0: but it's really exciting job it is a big brief and it's clear that you're responsible for so so many people you're right that it takes a village it certainly does yeah. So what does the operation look like behind the scenes?
1: Look, it's, it's a huge operation, depending on the size of the company, but I guess my biggest experience was at the Australian Ballet and the company employed something like 225 people um, and that doesn't include contractors and, you know, the various orchestras we work with. So there's usually, in a big ballet company, there can be anywhere between sort of 35 to... 80 to 150 dancers, and the artistic director basically looks after all those dancers, but you have an artistic staff, ballet masters, ballet mistresses, which are now usually called rehearsal directors. Then you know there's a whole medical team who look after the dancers. You've got a whole suite of rehearsal pianists who play for class and and rehearsals. And then other side of the organisation, which is the executive side. In most ballet companies, there's this sort of dual directorship role. So the executive director looks after the business side of the company, and the artistic director looks after the creative side of the company. And um, and there is lots of crossover. But yeah, I mean, people often used to come at the end of a year or you know after opening night and go oh, my God, you've done such a great job, you know, as if you single-handedly had put the whole program together. And there are, you know, layers and layers of people with incredible expertise, you know, that sell the tickets and the marketing ads and spend. You know, there's a whole finance team that makes sure that everyone's gets paid. There's an artistic operations team who look after contracting and all of those logistics of touring the company around the countryside and making sure we have theatres to perform in. In a way, we used to say it's almost like running three organisations. So you've got a logistics company, you've got an artistic company, and then, you know, a lot of the time you've got a healthcare company because, you know, the, the way we look after the dancers and reflected organisational people. It's you know, a team of about 15 medical people who look after us. So, yeah, it's a big, big old Titanic.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that in its broadness and the mix of the administrative and the physical, one could make a comparison to a high-level professional sports team, the likes of football teams in Europe, for instance.
1: Absolutely. It is, look, you know, it is sort of interesting too, because the timelines of a ballet company, I think people just sort of think we, and I thought, you just sort of pluck an idea out of the air and, you know, say we're going to do a new production of something and it just sort of magically happens but you know often those big new commissions take 3 years to to go from an idea to actually the curtain lifting on the show and you know it is quite wonderful to see something come from just some random conversation you have with a creative and then you know 3 years later you're sitting in you know the state theater looking at this magnificent 3 million dollar production <laughs> it's it's it, there is a sense of or but also responsibility in that decision making
0: yeah and speaking of responsibility it's not all glitz and glamour there is serious occupational hazard be it physical or even psychological uh, and that's managed by an extraordinary diligence and discipline
1: Yeah, look, I mean, in some ways we work in a very dangerous environment. I mean, it's a very controlled danger. I mean, unlike a sportsman on the field that, you know, if you're in a high physical contact sport, it can be a multitude of things that can send you off. But a theatre is a very controlled environment because it can be quite dangerous. You know, you've got hundreds of kilos worth of lighting equipment, stuff that sits above you, things that fly in and out during a show that you need to make sure that, you know, there's no one in the way of anything that could damage them. You've got a pit that's five or six, you know, metres below the stage and there's no, you know, rail. I mean, there was times where people wanted to put, you know, safety rails across the front of the stage, which wouldn't be a very enjoyable experience. There are things that you can do that, you know, if you're walking backwards to see something and, you know, people actually have fallen into pits and sometimes been killed. But equally, as a dancer, like, you know, you start the day every day in class and, you know, you may have in front of you mapped a whole year of repertoire and and performance commitments that can absolutely, like, disappear with one bad landing or, a you know, a sort of misjudged jump or turn or, or even, you know, for both the men and the women in partnering. I mean, you take incredible risk in a way to lift someone above your head and they have to have incredible trust that they're not going to end up flat on their back or you, you know, doing something to yourself. So yeah, there is inherent risks. And I think we work very much in that area of risk and we work in a lot of risk mitigation through the way we work to to make sure that no one is hurt or injured but people can be and so you have to be aware of that and I think that's why the stage is such a respected environment you know people don't do stupid things on stage and you prepare and rehearse towards something to
0: basically mitigate anything that can go wrong. I'd like to backtrack a little if I could and ask you about your own journey to where you are now. Well, look, you know,
1: it was crazy. I grew up in Perth. I was one of five, the third of five children. And my family were not particularly artistic. And I just always loved dancing. Like, even before I knew really what I was doing. In fact, my mother said I was one of the hardest babies to carry because I was always kicking her in the ribs. So I was obviously doing some dancing you know, in utero. And I just came out and I just was, movement was the thing that I just really connected to. Mm. And I guess I was always, I was a bit of an annoying child that, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at what I can do. Eventually I saw as a six turning seven year old, some footage of the Australian ballet preparing Don Quixote when Rudolf Nurev was here and dancing with Lucette Alders and I just I don't know it was just something that captivated me it was like that sort of aha moment and I said to my parents I want to do ballet and they were quite surprised Mm. a little bit horrified especially my dad and it took them a a good amount of time to find a teacher that would take me because you know obviously boys in ballet are quite unusual but Eventually, I started, and it was 1970, and I was in grade two at school. And basically, everyone was quite horrified, and I (laughs) turned my school social life into mire of not much friendship. I mean, I had one really good friend, but for me, ballet just sort of became the happy place. And so then I grew up for ten years training in Perth, and I've got to say they were amazing years, but. You know, socially it was tough. At that time in the 70s, doing ballet as a boy was just was just social death. I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School at 15 and I got in, which was very exciting, but my parents didn't let me go. They said I had to finish school, so then I did. And in 1981 I came over to Melbourne and trained at the Australian Ballet School. And it really turned out well for me because I was a little bit older but I was also a little bit more mature. I think if I had gone at 15 I would have been probably repeating years because I was very physically underdeveloped. So I joined the school, did two years at the school, and then Stephen Heathcote and myself were seconded into the Australian Ballet in 1983. And we were supposed to actually go back to the school and finish our final year, but there was a new artistic director, Mayne Gilgood, and she just assumed that I think we were part of the company and we just assumed that well, we're going to not say anything until someone sends us back, <laughs> um, and then that was the beginning. So, for the first five years I was in the organisation, I was promoted each year, which is sort of unusual. I mean, as was Steve, but I think there was a big gap in the middle of the company of male dancers. Hmm. So, yeah, I was sort of a senior artist by my fifth year, and then there was a couple of more years before I became a principal in '89. But in the midst of all of that, I went to a ballet competition in Moscow in 1985, and.
0: I've got to stop you there, David. I have to interrupt because I've been so curious to ask you about this. And I want to make sure I get the facts straight because it's just such an amazing curio of history. It's 1985. You travelled to the former USSR and won a bronze medal at the 5th Moscow International Ballet Competition. And then you were invited to return to the USSR in the capacity as a guest artist. You made appearances with the Bolshoi Ballet, the Georgian National Ballet, among others. So we have to know, what was it like to travel to the USSR back in those days?
1: Look, it was a really exciting time to be there. And, I mean, the ballet competition itself, I mean, I just... It personally just showed me how much further I had to go, but also just introduced me to all of these amazing dancers who weirdly, you know, through the rest of my career have sort of kept turning up in various guises. In the end of the competition, I mean, the bronze medal was nice, but it wasn't really the thing that was the most important for me. It was actually being in that sort of milieu of people and and experiencing that. And, you know, great experiences. I mean, I'd never been, obviously, to a communist country. And at that time, it was going through the beginnings of Perestroika and the change was very vibrant. And so I went back in with Elizabeth Tui, who I danced with in 86, 87, 88. I mean, we danced at the Bolshoi. We did Don Quixote at the Bolshoi, which was amazing. And they always used to just send you out on a bit of an out-of-town tryout. So that's why we, we went to Lithuania, we went to Georgia, we went to Estonia. But we were also the first Australians to dance at the Mariinsky, which was then known as the Kirov, also dancing Don Quixote there. And so it was, it was yeah, crazy times. I look back on it now and can't believe that I actually had that experience but it did really open up my eyes to the bigger broader picture of ballet and I think you know there is some sort of connection between especially the 19th century repertoire in Russia that's quite amazing. As I say, I just met so many people like Julio Bocca, who won the gold medal at the competition we went with. He, you know, went on to have a big career at the American Ballet Theatre. And, you know, I invited him to come and teach in my last year in in, in the Australian Ballet. And Nina Ananashvili, who runs the Georgian State Ballet, who, you know, we keep sort of coming across each other every so often. And yeah, it was just a, an amazing experience. It's a pretty remarkable pedigree. I mean,
0: it's a long, long way from Perth.
1: <laughs> it is a long way from Perth and you know I never expected to I mean when I was a young boy in Perth all I wanted to do was be a member of the Australian Ballet that would have been for my you know if I just was a member of the company that was my goal so I guess when I joined the company I felt you know pretty excited but then you know it's like everything I guess you know once you get to that first rung on the ladder and you see the the other levels to go it became, you know, the ambition just grew and grew, but I never would have, I mean, I feel I've been very lucky through my career and I don't know whether that luck is, I mean, I, I always wanted to be working hard and dancing well, but, you know, people gave me opportunities that just led to such, you know, bigger experiences. And so you just, you know, you do with those experiences what you can. And I guess... I, I really loved the challenge of, you know, those things I got to do. So,
0: And what was it like to work with those dancers at such legendary institutions?
1: Amazing. Especially in the Russian companies, both Kirov and, and Bolshoi, they're very different atmospheres. I think, the Bolshoi, because we'd done the competition, they'd sort of seen us dance through that experience. So we felt quite at home there. And people were very welcoming and, you know, it was really a lovely experience. The Mariinsky was different because, you know, it's a bit like Melbourne and Sydney. The You know, the, the Muscovites and the St. Petersburgers, they're a little bit, well, you think you're, you know, successful in Moscow, you know, this is St. Petersburg. So, you know, <laughs> you've got a whole new thing to learn. And so... The reception was a little cooler, but I've got to say by the end of the performance, because we only did the one show and we were literally there for, I think, 48 hours. We arrived, we rehearsed, we did the show and we left straight after the show on the train to go to Tallinn. They really warmed up and I actually think they thought, okay, well, you know, what are these Australians going to do? And I think we were very different to the style of dancer that they had and, you know, I think the Australian style is that sort of enthusiastic, engaging sort of bit of Gene Kelly, got a dance sort of moments that we were doing. And I think we won them over, which was really nice. But look, genuinely, I was so shocked that Soviet Russians were so... Friendly and hospitable because you know, all of the rhetoric of the cold war was that you know, they were these people that would shoot you on sight, and you know, that they were mean, militaristic, you know, sort of atomic bomb wearers, you know, and so the reality was that they were beautiful welcoming talented artistic very emotive people and you know we made sort of instant friends with people that you know if i saw tomorrow it would still be you know hugs and you know let's have a vodka you know it was yeah it was it it really changed a whole lot of my mythology of what a, a communist country would be
0: like and you also danced with ballet companies in london singapore canada all around the world What kind of lessons do you feel like um, you took on board from your time overseas with those companies in such far-flung places?
1: I think Maina Gilgood, who was the director for most of my career, she really understood when she came to Australia, and I mean, she was an English woman, but she understood the sort of isolation of Australia and the Australian ballet. And before I joined the company, a lot of dancers felt that they needed to be validated before they could, you know, so they would spend some time in the company and then go overseas and work. So they would sort of, I don't know, get some sort of accreditation, weirdly, you know, and Maina realized that we were losing a lot of our good dancers because sometimes they came back, sometimes they didn't. So she started off this program of exchange and so experiences where I went there and one of their dancers came to Australia. Mm. And it was incredibly clever of her because immediately everyone scratched that itch about being overseas. Mm. I think for me the time in Canada was really... Important because I'd just been promoted to principal, and to be given that opportunity to go there and throw yourself in another company and you know have to prove really yourself because mm. you know it's one thing to say, you know, I'm a principal, but it's like you know, you've got to actually stand up and produce the goods. Mm. And so, I was there for three months and I was there at a really exciting time for that company. So, all of their big ballerinas were still sort of performing. In fact, I got to dance on stage with Karen Kane, who's sort of like the Margot Fontaine of Canada. And I saw one of their other great ballerinas retire. And so I saw the way they sort of celebrated her. And I went, I came back to Australia with a whole lot of different ideas about how ballet could be received in you know, in our country. But equally in Birmingham, I mean, it was so interesting to be in a royal ballet situation, but in Birmingham, which was, you know, sort of like a big ballet company in say Geelong that to me was really interesting too, how often the cities outside the major cities don't necessarily have that opportunity to see ballet in that sort of scale. And it was brilliant. And I danced with a beautiful ballerina Miyako Yoshida, who is now the artistic director of the New National Theatre in Tokyo, which is the big ballet company of Japan. Yeah, I just feel like I, I grew up in a lot of those opportunities. And, and I came back with a whole lot of experiences that I think really factored into my time as a as a leader when i became artistic director
0: you write towards the end of this book david that your hope for the book is that ballet lovers everywhere share it with their friends especially those that may not quite understand the allure of this treasured art form so that they might be convinced to give ballet a go you point to what you term the best bits of ballet (laughs) for shorthand yeah so for those who have not yet ventured into the theater but maybe enticed by what they're hearing from our conversation, where would you say would be the best place to begin?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've sort of tried to give a little bit of this in the book and I think you know because dance is such an amalgam of all of the different art forms I mean you know as Nicolette Frey on my the Australian Ballet's amazing music director when I was there she always used to say you know it was the Gesamtkunstwerk you know it's the complete work of art so if you love visual art it's really better to go to one of those big narrative story ballets that have a big design sort of like Alice's Adventures in One Land that's coming up I mean it is a visual theme of design. If music is the thing that really floats your boat, then, you know, you want to go and see a Tchaikovsky or a Stravinsky or a Glazunov or all of those, you know, really important music, musical people. And so many of those ballets like Rite of Spring and Petrushka and Firebird that, you know, were written for ballet, but actually spend as much time being performed on the concert platform. So if music's your thing, that's the way to go. And I think if Theatre is, if you love a good story, to go and see one of the narrative ballets is, is quite important, like a Romeo and Juliet or a, I mean, even Anna Karenina, the piece that the company did two years ago, which absolutely is, you know, embedded in that sort of Pushkin story, but told without s- saying a single word. And it, that's sort of quite fascinating for people who aren't used to that. But if you're just curious, what's all this ballet all about? Often it's good to go and see something quite. Classic, you know, a Swan Lake, a Nutcracker, a Sleeping Beauty, a Giselle, because. They are quintessentially ballet and haléquinade. You know, they are those quintessential ballets. So you really get the full impact of what a ballet can be. But for some people, the entry point is the more contemporary mixed programs because it's usually a little bit funkier. It's looking at a dancer as an athlete. It's not mired in storytelling. So often people can come away from a you know a contemporary abstract program. Everyone has their own version of it. You know, I think it was about this, and you can have really interesting conversations about why. Once you've had a good experience, then often that leads you into the various other sorts of of ballets that you can see. I mean, I guess what our job is to make sure that no one has a bad experience on their first ballet because then you never get them back. I'm sure that people have seen performances of the Australian Ballet and gone, oh, no, that's not for me at all. But equally, you know, sometimes some of the touring companies and especially, dare I say it, some of the Russian touring companies that come in who are now totally commercial companies where they do the tiredest oldest saddest productions of the classics and you know people see that and go like oh yeah well that just confirms everything i hate about ballet and you know that really upsets me because i think if you have a bad experience it can turn you off for, for life
0: well david with your astute points and your recommendations i hope that fewer people will be disappointed and will instead be taken by the theatre, as I was when I read this book, and trotted off to see a performance. Also, props on a ripper title for the book.
1: (laughs) It's got that nice link to LA Confidential.
0: (laughs) Great film, great book. David, it's been really lovely to speak with you today, to learn about your own fascinating career and life, and to learn more about your book.
1: Thanks, Nico. It's been a great pleasure for me too
0: ballet confidential is available via all reading stores and from our website where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books music film and tv you can also sign up to e news or to receive our free monthly newsletter the readings monthly the readings podcast is produced by me nico calligan the show's music is by tom hoskins thank you for listening